Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining our exclusive Family Office Insights discussion around Family Office Compensation. My name is Mark Tepsik, and I'm the Family Office Design and Governance Strategist for our Family Office Solutions team here at UBS. Family Office Solutions is a team of dedicated specialists who work with our private wealth advisors to deliver holistic advice to the firm's wealthiest clients. Our solutions include areas such as income tax strategies, family office advisory, family advisory and philanthropy services, as well as art advisory, to name a few. We're solely focused on advancing our platform and resources targeted to the family office segment exclusively. The focus of today's discussion will be around how family offices respond to compensation dynamics among their family office executives. So today, we're joined by Paul Westall and Taya Muhammad, co-founders of Gregorius, a family office-focused staffing and recruitment firm with offices globally in London, New York City, and Asia, to name a few. Paul has served as a family office specialist for over a decade, building his international reputation. He spends much of his time producing insights and reports on everything from compensation benchmarking, benchmarking and intergenerational leadership to succession planning and cultural fit hiring, which is obviously vitally important to family offices. Taiba has worked with some of the biggest private banks and wealth managers to help bring their teams uh, human capital. He brings a self-side perspective to family office resourcing and recruitment, addressing pain points and navigating issues such as leadership, culture, hiring, employee retention, and comp strategies. So before we start, I want to mention that Agrace is included within the UBS professional network, but is not affiliated with UBS. Inclusion of Agrace in the professional network and the selection of Agrace to brief clients on family office staffing and compensation is not a recommendation of or a business referral to Agrace. So, Paul and Ty, I want to thank you both for joining me today to offer some thoughtful insights as well as best practices for aligning family office executives and the family office to better ensure long-term success. So, with that said, let's dive in. Um, so, the first question I'd like to pose to you both is, before seeking to hire a family office executive, what process or exercise do you suggest families and or family offices undertake? Sure. Thanks, Mark. I'll, I'll dive straight into that. I think this is probably the most critical part of the process and to success of your family office. And, and we have this conversation with, with clients across the world. And I think that the first thing all families and family offices need to do is to define the purpose of the family office. Um, and, and what I mean, all purposes can be different. I mean, typically, and we ask this question a lot, it's about wealth preservation, so making sure that the, the wealth continues on to generations to come. But others have very different views. So just to give you some examples, what we mean by that, we helped a family that had, um, uh, his main purpose was philanthropic goals. So long after the life of this person, uh, they wanted to be given to, to the causes that they've, they've had you know, for many years, they didn't have any, um, you know, heirs to the to the wealth. So their whole the whole reason for the family office is to be able to continue to give. So that f purpose was very different to some other families that we've helped to that are maybe at the, you know, entrepreneurial side, first generation, making money and looking at, at, at growth as, as, as a, for their wealth as a strategy. So defining that to begin can help with the process of who you need in your family offices and obviously the compensation structure. Um, so talking more specifically, so once you've got that purpose and, and you're looking at, um, you know, trying to build a team, you need to make sure you get all the key influencers and stakeholders involved in this process. Um, and, and, and what we mean by that, it could be that, you know, there's no formal, there's no one structure for any family office. So it could be the advisor that you have a key interest. It could be family members. It could be people in the operating business. Whoever are the key decision makers in the, the growth and development of the family office, you need to get them involved in the early stages of looking to hire an executive. Um, and obviously there could be different expectations and it's better to find that out at the early stages rather than you've gone through five interviews in the final stages to meet the, the, the husband or the wife and then they've got a very different view to what, what, you, what you, you started with. Um, at this stage again, I think just to be helpful, it needs to be very transparent at the beginning. So what your purpose is, um, what you're looking to achieve, what you're hoping for needs to be transparent at that, that stage in the process. And, and one thing I think to, to begin just as it was starting this, this subject, I think determining what success is uh, and what the measurables are. And I think that's, that's a, an area that a lot of families miss out 
you know, and we, we end up getting called when there are you know, disputes because no one actually knew at the beginning what, what was successful for us as a family. Was it your return on investments? Was it, you know, other measurables that, that actually are really important to the family? So I think those are the things to get right at the, at the very early stages. So it makes complete sense. So you've got purpose, get the stakeholders involved, so the key decision makers, confirm expectations, which is really alignment, be yep. transparent, and then really define success and what success is all around that. Yeah, and that, that's the real, if you, you get those elements, obviously we can talk specifics later on about the actual process of, of, the, of recruiting, but I think you get those, they're the building blocks to the family office success, and we've seen it where people have missed out these things and met down the line, they, they, they cause problems uh, for the family. So I think this is really key to get that at the beginning. Perfect. Makes sense. And if, if I may just add a quick point there, Mark, um, not only would this be relevant or appropriate for, um, you know, for, for hiring an executive, but also for hiring a manager, for example, that would look after investments and everything like that or any external provider, because these are the, these are the kind of questions they'd want to know as well. Because uh, as UBS, I'm sure you ask your clients, what's the objective of the family office? Is it growth? Is it just preservation? Because I think I'm sure the strategies that you take for based on those answers would be very different, or we hope they're different, you know, and and that's that's what this helps us zero into. Yeah, of course. I mean, each, you know, we, we say that each family office is different, but it's really each family is somewhat unique and different. And so... Um, making sure there's fit and alignment there for their purpose and their goals uh, makes complete sense, especially from you know the human capital side of things. Uh, okay, so once we set the foundation, um, what are the value add to bringing a recruiter such as yourself into the mix? Without sounding like a salesperson, because we are essentially trying to promote uh, what we do, but um, I'd, I'd just talk about this objectively as possible. I think the number one thing that we bring to the table is the ability to professionally screen candidates for you. What I mean by that is we screen candidates from an ecosystem that's known to us. So just be, uh, say if you're recruiting for a family office, it's pointless me trying to go out and look for candidates always just from the sell side. I'm not saying that people from the sell side are not necessarily always going to work for them, uh, but our first point of call would be people from the ecosystem, people from other family offices who've been there, done that, because I think what family offices underestimate is the cultural nuances of working for a family office. And we come with that knowledge and understanding. So we know that someone who's worked in a family office doing a similar role will understand the need to juggle different things and wear multiple hats uh, as opposed to someone who's from a corporate world who's used to being uh, in a silo. Uh, so professional screening is one of them. So usually we start with people that we know from the ecosystem, people who've been subscribing to our content for years that, that we know are potential candidates uh, for appropriate roles and that's how most of our placements happen uh, you know and uh, we go through a process where there's series of interviews with them so anyone that we actually put forward to a client we know that they would ha already have the ability to do the job they check all the boxes in terms of the job description the only reason why they may or may not work would be based on cultural fit because the principal or the, the hiring managers feel, no, you know, he's a bit too loud for our environment or he's too reserved or, you know, he's not exactly what we're looking for from a personality point of view. Uh, but in terms of the ability to do the job, he definitely bring that to the table. So because of our knowledge and education in this space, we understand that. And what that helps with is also helping clients understand what they need. Because a lot of the times, you might be surprised when I say this, a lot of clients come to us and they, let's say they've had a liquidity event and they're trying to structure a new family office and they don't really understand sometimes the, the nuances or the difference between, especially if someone's made their wealth not from financial services. So say if they've made money in manufacturing. And, but they are trying to invest and create uh, a team in, within investments for their family offices, uh, for their family office. Uh, what they would usually come with some sort of an understanding of an investment manager, but they would give us, they will talk to them about this and then we realize what they actually is not, is, is not as simple as an investment manager. What they need is more like a CIO. And it could be the other way around. Um, I'm just giving you that as an example because they don't understand the nuances of what a typical portfolio manager would do or someone who just specializes in one asset class would do versus someone 
who's like a CIO who uh, who would bring uh, a holistic approach to the table, who would be involved in asset allocation processes, you know, the strategy, the manager selection, if some of this is outsourced and things like that. So we help them get clarity on what they're looking for uh, more than uh, more than probably they understand that. Um, also, we have access to a larger and relevant audience because of this, because because of our network and following and things like that. So anyone who specializes in the family office space generally would have access to relevant audience. Um, the other thing is we have the, the, the privilege of hindsight, you know, from past errors uh, that family offices have uh, and uh, the mistakes that family offices have made when it comes to hiring within their immediate network of friends and family, which I'm sure you know uh, is usually uh, the first point of call for a lot of families because they tend to hire people who they know. For example, it's very common for private bankers to be hired as the CEO of a family office because it's the banker that served them well for, uh, for many years and they feel he'll be able to replicate that work for them in the family office. Uh, and I'm not denying that uh, the case all the time, but of course, you want to find the best man for the job and really put this, uh, the work in to get the person to do that. Um, it doesn't mean just because someone's had great success in an environment where there's uh, tons of infrastructure and teams will be able to replicate that in a four-man or five-man family office. So, And sometimes they're in for that shock and then they come to us at a firefighting situation where they're trying to really replace this person and they need someone immediately. So these, I think, in a nutshell, these are the things that we can bring to the table or, or any recruiter that specializes within uh, the family office space. Yeah, the, only thing I'll just, the only thing to add, sorry, I'll just say that I think like exactly what I, uh, you know, echo what Ty have said is that particularly if they're going to the friends and family, which is often the first, like Ty mentioned, the first route, and it, sometimes it works amazingly well and it's great, but what often happens is that the screening is not always as professionalized because there's, you know, you're recommended a friend's son or daughter, uh, and it could be uncomfortable probing too deep. And we've seen examples where people have taken, you know, trust as the uh, as the, as the initial. Yeah, okay, we trust this person, so that means that their their family members are going to be trusting. And unfortunately, you know, it's not always. Yeah, hopefully, it's, it, but there's, there's, we've seen horrible situations where they haven't done the full screening. They've not really looked at can they do the job, or they've just gone on a trust basis. So sorry, that was just one thing just to add at the end. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes complete sense. Uh, I mean, you know, the, we're filled today here with family office executives, so you're, you're really preaching to the choir. Um, but so to sum up, it's cultural fit. Um, it's really, you know, for the family, it's helping them guide them where they're going from one industry, um, which may be manufacturing or real estate or something, to really wealth management for a family, which is frankly completely different. Um, but a lot of times they run with, you know, people who they're comfortable with, who they trust, who they're loyal to, um, because that's a big thing. You're inviting these people into really your personal lives because it's not just investment management or accounting or tax. It's personal in nature, very personal in nature. So uh, great insight. Um, so the next question. So given that people are one of the biggest pieces of the puzzle, how to hire a team for your own family office? So how do you identify the right people? What are the best practices? And so I think we sort of covered a lot of that um, in the last kind of answer. But if there's anything left to add, because we're really talking about a team here. Um, mm. So just maybe that change in nuance to the question is we're looking at a team as opposed to your first hire. Yeah, no, I think we can add a bit more detail from that. So I think like, like on the first question, we talk about understanding purpose and, you know, all those elements. Once you've understand that, then you can start to build build a team. Um, and obviously, I think like like we mentioned, I think without, you know, without too detailed, I think the, the first things you need to do is a professional process. And that does include creating a, a job description. And, you know, job descriptions in family office, we laugh because, you know, you go above, beyond, sideways your role. I'm sure there's people working in roles that they're, you know, they're doing way beyond what their, their, their job description are. I think there needs to be an understanding of what, because, you know, like Ty mentioned, not everyone knows exactly what's needed. You know, I've had conversations, well, we need an accountant, but what are they, actually, what are they going to do? So understanding that is talking to the advisors, maybe talking to the, you know, all your trusted network, the key decision makers, what do we need and put that down in a job description. I think it's really important to identify the possible career paths. 
um, and we can we can p- push more into this later because again we we need to we talk about having a reality check. So what is the career path? So expectations is, is you know if if this is a role that is not going to change dramatically for the next ten years, you know attracting someone who's looking to really progress in their career and move up the ladder that's not going to be the right fit for you and then you're going to have problems two three years down the line so having these reality checks is what we call it and making sure that that's realistic with your expectations but also the other thing is having expect you everyone has an idea of what a perfect candidate is so we want you know a harvard graduate we want them to be this you know this we need this experience from one of the top you know bowls bracket banks wherever it may be but this is our budget and they may not always meet up or actually do we really need that that type of background so it's having expectations of what a candidate really is because we've had it where people have come to us and after we've been trying to search for a year but we've not found the right person and when we discuss it's like actually but do you really need that specific element oh no we're not really so then we, we mold it and find the person that's right for them um and i think the key thing which we've touched upon and ty mentioned is understanding your culture in your family office so you know we're not we're not you know advocating mirror mirror hirings of hiring people exactly like you but just finding do we need someone who's going to fit into that or do we need someone that's slightly different and just to give you a brief example we had you know type a personality you know wealth creator head of the family office he believed that he wanted someone similar to him um but when we started looking to that process it was going to be you know crashing heads so they were like actually do you know what we don't really need it. We don't need a rest yes person, but we need someone who can challenge, but also understand that you're, you are the decision maker. So understanding that at the beginning can re- really help you. And then there's lots of things we can focus on, like conducting a professional screening process. And that can be done with the help of, you know, people like ourselves, or you can do that, you know, in, internally if you decide to take that route. Um, but it's, it's, it's focusing on the, in the, in the interview process, focusing on the cultural fit, focusing on the right keys and, you know, key skills. And, and we can, again, look at the detail how you do that. And we recommend things such as, you know, conducting case studies. So you give, you know, pretending, you know, depending what the role is, if it's an investment, giving them an example problem they need to solve and get them to come back to you and present that to the team. So these, these are all sorts of, you know, ideas. And obviously continuing that professional, you know, pre-reference checking due diligence on these people. Uh, but the, the biggest, biggest thing of all, and that and to make sure that you, you know, you get this right in your team is, is hiring for cultural fit. That that's, you know, we can't, you know, push that enough. Makes complete sense. So let's switch gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something a little bit more focused on trends. In the essence that, how have you seen portfolio allocations, you know, as they change over time? How have you seen that really drive? what sort of investment professional family offices have been targeting? How have you seen that kind of change over the years and where are we sort of at now with respect to, you know, everyone, a lot of family offices are allocating more to alts, um, you know, real estate, private equity, so on and so forth. So we'd love to get some insight there. Cool. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's a very important question given the current times as well. I mean, uh, to give you an example, uh, post-pandemic, we saw, uh, tremendous allocations to private equity generally, though things have slowed down a little bit, but I think it's definitely still on an upward trend because I think um, there's just the amount of uh, the dry powder available uh, in the industry uh, and um, the opportunities are there, but I understand the pressures that's, that inflation and uh, the interest rates are causing right now uh, in terms of returns, but uh, uh, if you take a long-term view, it's still very sensible for family offices and family offices are actively doing it. Whether you're doing it through funds or whether you're doing it directly, I think, especially if you're doing it directly, family offices need a lot more infrastructure, which means more in-house capabilities. And that's what we've seen over the last few years. So there's been a lot of focus and competition for private equity talent. Now, the problem that brings, that's easier said than done, because you're competing almost directly for the best with some of the firms in the sales side, so some of the biggest names that you can think of within the the, the, the private equity world uh, is where family offices are actually trying to attract talent from. Now, if you put, uh, for for example, if I'm trying to hire a private equity analyst in New York, 
I, I would actually struggle today because there's tons of opportunities within the private equity firms itself where they're promised a cat read structure, where, which is very visible. You know, if there's a four or five year sort of a period where they know that there's something in there at the end of it. Whereas family offices, on the other hand, strategically have a much more longer term view. Some of them don't even think of those kind of time frames. They have time frames excess of 10 years because they want to hold and create value uh, and pass it on to the next, uh, create a legacy of that. And uh, so it's, it presents a challenge in itself because you're trying to move people away from uh, where they have this opportunity, but why should they come to you? You know, you could be you could be uh, a big name, but you're still you're still uh, nowhere near some of these big houses and uh, what they're allocating in that space and how big these funds are. So you you're naturally competing with the best, essentially. So uh, obviously, professionalizing the process, thinking about exactly what's in it for them, would really be the starting point, uh, is what I would say. And uh, whether it's private equity or or real estate or even the public security side of things. I think you need to have a clear plan for hire, what performance would look like, what good performance, what bad performance looks like, what performance measure, uh, what the performance measurement would look like, so that you can define success, just like Paul mentioned earlier on, and reward them in in that in that way. Now, talking about reward for private equity, because there's it's hard to implement carried interest, and uh, I might like to re- reference our. Uh, 2023 global compensation benchmark, which we did uh, involving 650 global family offices. Um, we were quite surprised. U.S. is one of the family uh, office destinations that tend to pay a lot more in, in terms of long-term incentive planning. But still, it was only a third of the respondents that actually uh, said that they get LTIP including all the investment professionals and everything like that. So what that means is a vast majority of these investment professionals are still getting paid in the form of some sort of a formulaic bonus of some sort or a a discretionary bonus, but not the typical carried interest that they'd be getting used to uh, in the kind of firms that I'm talking about. So that's definitely a challenge on its own. But um, as the markets get competitive uh, and the markets tend to do better, it's, it's hard to attract talent, you know. And uh, especially for the top caliber kind of people. But this is not just for private equity, you know, because I think family offices are actively moving towards a much more diversified portfolio. And that means you might need a uh, skill set maybe in in an asset class that you didn't think that you you were going to be actively involved in as much as you are now. And and that's happened to a few of our families. So suddenly you're going to have to really think about this, think about what success would look like for these guys, because it's hard to give a, a vertical growth uh, route for these candidates within a family office just because of the nature of them. They're very flat, uh, non-hierarchical structures. But then how can you incentivize these people? They, obviously, there's compensation, but sometimes it's not just compensation. It's about giving them more responsibilities, the ability to grow and creating a culture of success within the organization that they really thrive on. We often say this, a role within the family office is not for everybody. I think it takes a, a specific kind of a person to work for a family office and someone who understands these. Things. I hope that answers your question. No, I mean, that's great insight. Um, and I see a lot of this, you know, coming inbound from our family office clients, whether it's the owners or the family office executives, where they're really looking to, you know, poach somebody from PE or banking. And the issue is when they take somebody from that environment, uh, families don't have to put capital to work in the direct space. And so I see oftentimes they'll get somebody from a PE firm um, who's used to doing, you know, a handful of deals a year, and then they get to the family and they do one deal a year. There's no timeline on the sale. And so they, you know, that PE analyst um, is like, I gave up a carried interest for, you know, at a XYZ top caliber firm because there was all these promises. But at the end of the day, you have to really, Again, to your point, be transparent with everything and say, listen, like we might do these deals. This is what we want to do. But if something turns, we're, we're not going to allocate. Uh, where I've seen it really work is if a family has domain expertise, maybe they have a liquidity event, maybe they don't, but then they go raise a fund around it and say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to raise capital. But that's slightly different from a family office model. That's more, we are a private equity fund rather than a, um, a family office. So I'll just kind of leave that there. Um, so completely understand that dynamic and those nuances. Um, 
But to that point, I want to um, uh, go to another question, which is a lot of, you know, top of mind, because, again, we've got family office executives on the call. They're playing in a market which is a very opaque market when it comes to compensation, right? It's apples to oranges. You've got geographic considerations. Each family office is different. Some are more investment-focused. Some are more administrative. Um, and so, you know, just kind of recall your comp, recent comp study. I would love to get a quick background on that, by the way. But also, how do you help these families and families really baseline their comp to making sure it's fair for both the family but also the executive and to drive long-term alignment? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. And, and I think this is... We've start, we started our business, you know, we're in our 14th year now. And the, the first year, this is one of the biggest challenges all families had. You know, whether you're in New York, in Lagos, in, you know, Singapore, it's they didn't know how to compensate. And, you know, in particularly because they're attracting people from very benchmarked industries, you know, for example, investment management, the banking, the professional services and law firms, where there's quite obvious gradings in these firms that have a, you know, a, a salary attached to that, and it could be comparable, you know, if you move from one firm to another. So when it comes to the family, there's so many different nuances that they're trying to contend with. So we realized very early on that we started, you know, obviously placing people. We've, we started building up primary data where we could actually understand what people are getting paid. Then we started running surveys, and we've, we, I think we're into our fifth, fifth year of doing the survey. Um, but, we, you know, we, we obviously the more data, the more accurate this becomes. And then we started to be able to actually drill down on specifics because, you know, the, it, it, you know, there are some comparables. It's often around asset size. You know, naturally, if the assets that you manage are higher, you're typically, you know, you're, you're, it's possible for you to pay more. But that's not always the case. You know, surprising, we've seen families, and you'll see in our report where, you know, a CEO of a $10 billion family office is only less than a CEO of a $500 billion, you know, dollar family office. So it doesn't always run that way, but typically... We can we can break it down. You can look at the sophistication of it. How how much is in house? You know, so if you're a senior person and you're managing a lot in house, then naturally you should be you paid more because a lot of your your saving costs. Um, you know, you know, as opposed to outsourcing these types of things. So so we we started creating these benchmarks. And as I say, we we did the big one last year. We did this in collaboration with KPMG to try to get a bigger audience. 650 families and we got some you know some great data and you know our biggest markets when you look at the stats are from the US um, I think that's the leader and then in Europe in, in the UK they're the two the other markets you know yeah, not strong but the big big data points are there so I think you know that that is um, it's a difficult thing um, we also have a compensation benchmarking business where we go in and we you know analyze you know individuals salaries and comp comps and bonus structures and can try and compare that to similar type family offices so i think the answer to it is that it's very bespoke you know we've got some great data and you can you can you can get some information out of that but it becomes quite specific to your your family office and all your different you know unique needs but i guess the way that we always look at it is how much would it cost to replace someone particularly if you're going out into the market so you know the example of finding a private equity analyst Last year, we saw a, a bigger drive in hiring the sort of mid-level analysts, whereas typically it's more maybe one senior person in the firm that covers that. But last year, we saw a big... And so they had to look at external factors, such as what if you're hiring from the private equity firms? You need to be comparing and benchmarking to that. So that's just sort of a, a long long answer to that. It is, it is very bespoke, but we're starting to build enough data and, and, and knowledge to be able to provide some, you know, broad guidance that this is what you should be paying. Yeah, great insight. I mean, one thing that I see a lot that uh, families, particularly if they're coming out of an industry, you know, they're usually anchored to the KPIs of that industry. So real estate families are like, I'm going to pay my person on promote or something similar to promote, which is probably not appropriate um, to a family office setting, especially if they're not an investment professional. Um, and so, you know, my word of advice um, is just help the family come to really a clean, blank slate when it comes to comp, because the industry that they're coming out of may or may not have any relevance to the family office setting. Um, mm -hmm. So those comp structures may or may not be relevant um, for obvious reasons. So, you know, when you're looking at comp, obviously you're looking at base pay, uh, 
structure the compensation, which could be, you know, carried interest, promote. Um, I want to not talk about, hey, here's the overview of how family office executives are paid. But when you're helping families structure the compensation, which is the different components, what are some things to not do? Because um, I, I just don't want like an overview of like, hey, here's how family office executives can be paid. But what are some things you've seen that kind of go wrong when they're structuring compensation? I think that the, the first thing is not being transparent and clear at the beginning. And, you know, so it is often, and I think the stats show that and it's still 72% of family offices in, uh, you know, professionals are still paid on a discretionary basis. Um, and it's not uncommon to have that end of year meeting with the principal. You, you have no idea what you're going to get. And sometimes it can be based on, you know, that something's happened, you know, personally that's, you know, that's upset the family and they're, they're no, they don't feel like they want to, you know, or they've got other commitments. Um, you know, just to give you an example, we had, um, you know, a family that uh, the individual would be making huge, you know, double-digit returns every year, year on year, and you know, and the year that he, he exceeded that, he got paid less than the year that he, he um, you know, did lesser return, and he, and he couldn't work out. There was no structure, and it, it started to build resentment within the family office. And then when they pushed, when the push came to shove, they realised when they looked at it, you know, he, the, the returns were amazing, but the family had a passion project that they are investing in, uh, which was taking a large amount of their capital. And it had no impact on what the, the individual, you know, CIO was doing, but it, it, it obviously it didn't allow them to have as much, you know, cash flow to then pay bonuses. So it was that, at the, that really caused, you know, problems. So I think one thing I say at the beginning, make sure, you know, and it doesn't have to be, we're not saying day one, because I think in family offices, we encourage build that trust and loyalty. It can almost be after year one. So year one can be that discretion, Let's see how you perform, you know, and then at that point you can start to put. But I think don't let it go beyond, you know, year one. That at that point have a, a clear structure in place, and you know, having measurables, having benchmarks. It's amazing that how many families don't have that. And we've seen, and again, you need to be very distinctive about what is the family office wealth, you know, because we've seen that you know some families have still got large operating businesses. And we've reviewed these families and, you know, 60% of the AUM is, is out of an operating business that the family's owned for 50 years. But the CIOs, it is, and it may be, a, you know, a listed um, equity and they're, they're, they're managing the position, but they're not really doing anything towards the actual value, creating value in that company. But their whole, the whole AUM's looked at and they're getting rewarded for that. And that doesn't make sense in that, in that side. So you need to be very distinctive. What's the family office? What are the benchmarks? What do we think successful? Are we comparing this to the, you know, the benchmarks out there that they are, they have for, you know, for, for, for private equity? And just be very clear at the beginning. That's that's one point I've mentioned. And okay. if I may just add quickly, Mark, uh, just to what Paul said there. Again, something that we've seen quite a lot, and surprisingly so, just because of uh, the, the background the families have come from, uh, where they have not uh, worked or created wealth in the financial services industry. So sometimes they try and offer carry to. What you, who you would not expect to receive a carry. Um, like someone who's really junior, still part of the investment team per se. But I, th I, I just want to make this clear, not just carry. Any LTIP should only be offered to your critical or key staff, usually the C-level guys or anyone you identify as, you know, because titles mean nothing within a family office. You know, you could be called anything and doing completely different things. But whoever you identify uh, as a key person, a key man, key woman within your team, who would really do some damage if they left you, and you want to essentially uh, entice them to stay on for a certain, uh, a longer period of time. These are the people that you want to offer, and also making sure that they have um, an impact on the actual returns and they're creating value for you. So these are the only people that you should for because he's been surprised when some of the other people um, we've come across. We come across a lot of these review situations where they hold on a second, how are you getting a carry? Or you know, some sort of an L tip, like you know, why are you getting a carry or that, that sort of thing. Usually the basic structure should be simple. It should be a base salary and a discretionary bonus for, uh, uh, for you can give discretionary bonus even for operational staff based on performance for people who, who to deliver on qualitative targets, you know, not just quantitative, uh, like it can be for a, a PA uh, for achieving a certain uh, amount of deadlines and achieving a certain level of quality that's defined at the start. That's why uh, I think Paul drilled upon the importance of defining that role, uh, really writing it down in black and white as to what would make this role a success.
So I hope that would be a great starting point for them. No, that's great. Uh, perfect insight. So one thing I've been seeing a trickle of, um, and meaning like two to three over the past year, is obviously you've got different components of compensation. But the one thing families fear is what you just said, their sea level leaving for whatever reason. So I, I just want to understand why more family offices aren't incorporating a retention bonus, which is, hey, if you stay 10 years, you get X. Um, because I think it's great because it achieves long-term alignment, but it also is not influencing any behaviors, right? On the investment portfolio, you're not, you're not taking on any additional risk. It's just you stay as long as everything's fine, right? Certainly you could be terminated or you could leave before that, but you will not get a retention bonus. And if you stay, everybody's happy, you will get a retention bonus. So is there any insight you have on retention bonuses in the family office setting? And I, again, I don't see many of them at all, but I just don't understand why. Yeah, I think I can, I think it's, it's a bit of a, it's, it's a, difficult one because it can be quite risky because you don't want someone to stay in your family office just to take that retention bonus when they're not actually happy or or providing value so the the alternative in which we see some of the most successful family offices that have been running for, you know for 30 years and the staff you know have been there from 30 to 10 years depending on the level they do have the the long-term incentive planning but they have it over a rolling sort of five-year period and it, and it obviously it's based on the performance of the overall funds so it's obviously because that at the end of the day is, is the driving force to make sure there's enough capital to keep reinvesting. So it's, it's based on that. And it, but it also eliminates the, the, um, the, the shock years where, you know, someone's invested in Zoom, you know, just before COVID and then, you know, and then it's just, they've just rode the markets and got lucky. So they, they look at it from a long period. So that seems to work really well. And that, that creates alignment of interest that creates that long term. And people tend to stay then, and it's they're, they know in you know five years they're going to achieve, which essentially is a loyalty bonus. But the loyalty bonus has some you know benchmarks attached to it, which enables the family to pay that. So that really works well, and we've seen families do that, um, and you know really successfully. Problem is sometimes if, if the other problem we found, and we've had these you know conversations, if you overpay, to, if you overpay, people. To, do tend to stay sometimes, and it's difficult to leave. You know, we've, we've, you know, you, we've had these situations. Where we say, well, if you, any of these people go, they're never going to find a job that's paying the same. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a balance you've got to try and manage where you, you're creating longevity and loyalty, but you're not doing it to the, the detriment of someone not, you know, moving on because they're unhappy. And that's why it's important to professionalize and get people who understand what pay looks like in that business to advise you on that, you know, because like Paul just mentioned, we, we, one of the services that we offer to our clients is compensation consulting, where usually it's a, it's a, it's a diplomatic word for firefighting. Uh, we come into safe situations where there's a disgruntled employee at a senior level and he's unhappy. Usually it's down to payments of sorts uh, more than anything else. Because, and then I think, I think that boils down to A, uh, just not taking doing things the right way from the start. So so, so I think the, you don't want it to get to that sort of situation because uh, especially when you're a family office, where privacy and confidentiality is so important. The last thing you want is disgruntled employees leaving you and washing dirty linen in public, you know, and uh, that, uh, though that's not what they're supposed to be doing, but, you know, it, it, we know that these things have happened in the past and that's really damaging from a reputation point of view for families and, and, and even for the actual family office because the ecosystem of family offices is fairly small, as you know, Mark. So, so employees would hear from other employees about, hey, you know, that place is a nightmare to work at, you know, and that sort of thing. So that's not great for family offices in, in any situation. So, so, so the one thing that we say is, if you hire, hire once, get it right. You know, uh, just, just, uh, you know that just do all the things that you would need to, to get it right. Good advice. Um, along those same lines, you know, you mentioned sort of firefighting and you, you offer the comp consulting. Um, again, we're joined today by a bunch of family office executives. What advice would you have um, or at least insight on? There's always a, a conversation to be had between the family executive and the key stakeholders of the family in thinking through compensation. So do you have any advice for them, um, the executives, in just kind of having those conversations with the 
family, uh, particularly if they've been there, you know, a handful of years and comp just hasn't met or, you know, they could essentially, you know, the cost of replacement would be high, but also they could be compensating much higher at another family office. What sort of, again, advice, insight would you have for them to have that Conversation I mean, with the family. So, do you want to do you want to go, Paul? Then I'll, yeah, I'll go, uh, yeah. What I was going to say is that I think if 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 we because the, the, it all comes down to communication, and often family offices don't have that structured. So it's, it's a point to mention that there should be at least you know maybe two twice a year there are a formal review process where people can talk. You know that it's not because it's like a family like like a family office is like a family. You don't always you know you, your wife and your kids. There's not always a formal meeting, so things get brushed under the carpet sometimes. And it's the same in a family office. So having these structured meeting points and, and coming to them with information. So you know our reports available. There's many others out there. Well, there's not many. There's there are two or three others out there that you can take. And, you know, you can ask people like us for advice. So you go prepared and say, look, this is what the market's playing. I'm happy, but I feel like there's got to be, you know, some progression. Um, and having that conversation early on is because families are, you know, they're happy. They're getting good performance. They, don't, they, feel, they feel like they're paying this person well. They're not a wealth management firm. They're there to someone who's someone's hand it, managing their money. So I think it's just coming well prepared and equipped with the information to say, look, I don't plan to leave. I'm very happy, but this is what the market pays for someone like me. I'm not saying I need that, but I need to some have some form of incremental growth in this, to, you know, for the future. And I think that that comes with the expression of professionalizing. We keep using that term professional. What we mean by that is you could be a four-man team, but I think you could still act and adopt practices of a big firm, such as having reviews, having performance measurement processes, you know. And the reviews are an opportunity not just for the employees to talk to their employers about uh, their issues, but the employer can address uh, their issues too. And, you know, and I think it's, it's a two-way process. It's very, um, if, if handled effectively and planned and thought out, a well-thought-out review process can usually negate a lot of um, uh, negative consequences, you know, and, uh, and kind of uh, to take, uh, to take control of things. Perfect. Um, so before we leave here today, would you be able to share one or two case studies uh, that are just very relevant um, for the audience uh, before we leave? So we, we thought about that. Let's say there's, yeah, I just thought what some, some interesting ones, maybe one not interesting but unusual, is that you know, we see all sorts of mandates that come to us and we always laugh because they go, oh, that's not going to be an easy one. <laughs> and that's pretty much every single mandate in the last 13 years. There's always something that's slightly different. And you know, I think the, the guys in the audience will probably understand and resonate with the jobs they do are, are great, they're challenging, but they can be very different. So we, you know, we had a mandate, we're looking for a CFO, for you know, a high-level family office, um, and part of the role was the typical CFO, accounting, all, all the things that come with that. But then also they mentioned, oh, yeah, but my, um, my other, you know, the, the spouse was quite ill. So they needed to be on call because if the principal was traveling, they needed to be there to go and help them and care for them and, you know, take them to hospital. And it's like, that's, I'm a CFO. Like, it was like a bizarre, like, you know, <laughs> they wasn't expecting that. But obviously it wasn't the job. It was maybe 10%. They just, they just needed someone who had that. You know the ability to you know to to have those human skills and say look I'm happy to care and help and it's not my job but if it take if I if I help the family so it was quite unique and obviously then when looking for that person most people would say yeah I'd happily do it the other people would just be honest and say look that's just not for me you know I I can't do that so it was just a, I think unique experience that we we came across and not your usual CFO job description at the bottom of it so um, yeah I just thought that was quite interesting and I'm sure family you know guys in the audience will probably have their own stories where yeah I'm you know I'm, I'm the CEO but I'm also had to do this part of the role which is not usual in the job description of course and one thing and one thing that we we always say this I, I said this earlier on in the call I don't think a job at a family office is for everybody though you might think that you have the skill set to do it and everything like that but I think it comes with a, a high level of emotional intelligence and that's why as a firm we really try and push a lot of women into family offices as well or at least try and promote because naturally there is um, uh, a disparity in, in, in the hiring just like everywhere else because we think that women tend to do really well in this space as well because I think they naturally uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a scientific fact that women have better uh, emotional intelligence than men uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and because of that they tend to do well, and it's it's stuff like that. It's just empathy, empathizing with the situation, and just having the ability to 
step out and do things beyond what your your job description would say you know and things like that so 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 i think making sure that the person that you hire is uh, uh, is 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 emotionally intelligent enough to understand the nature of the entity that she's he or she is going to be working in you know and that's that's quite an important aspect and yeah, I, yeah. sorry mark yeah no i mean i, I think that um to your point of uh, getting more women involved in the family office space, I mean, half the clients are also women too, right? So, I, I mean, I think it's vitally important just from that aspect. Um, but, I mean, interesting uh, nuances there and, you know, insights. So yeah, I was going to say, I mean, maybe just one just totally different example and it's just quite interesting looking at it from a different perspective is family members of the family office moving into senior roles within the, the family office. So just to give you an example, we've, we've helped families where, you know, the, the next generation have significantly added value to the operating business, you know, dramatically increased the wealth of the whole family by the, the, the operating business uh, and have managed to create exit and create wealth and maybe with the family decided, you know what, we own a huge amount of this asset. We need to be, you know, back to wealth preservation. We need to diversify. Maybe that's sell some of this business, we can still own it, but we can use that money now to then diversify in other investments. So their natural progression is to move into the family office. And we think, great, okay, they're in the family office, they're running this money, they're getting a big salary, uh, and often it can cause issues with other siblings. So the siblings are like, well, you're now not running the business, but you're, you're taking a huge salary and you're getting the, the benefits of being a family member with dividends. And, it, and we've looked at that and realized that these, these issues can come up quite often. And even though this person was the wealth creator uh, of the, uh, you know, helping generate the wealth to have a family office, they're now running in a role as a CIO or CEO with maybe a significantly higher salary. So we need, you know, the people need to think, well, how does, how do you manage that in a family office? You know, is that, you know, again, they have some, in, you know, values that no one from outside the family can bring, bring. But would it, would it make sense to bring someone external to run this? Um, and you know they can still be an advisory member, but your view that you know there's no need to be paying double what the the current you know a typical CIO should get paid. So those types of examples are, are, can be quite challenging. We've found. Yeah, um, I can certainly see that, and you know it's the same thing with the family business, right? I mean, it's they're getting distributions, or frankly, none of the family is getting distributions, but they're getting a salary, so they don't care to distribute. They'd rather reinvest in the family business or the enterprise. Um, but again, great insight. So before we leave today, any final remarks, something maybe we did not cover or you just want to leave us with? And I think, I think one, I might need one thing is to say that, you know, what is a family office? A family office is really just made up of, of a, a team of people. So, you know, and we've, we've, we've promoted this before, you know, what is your biggest asset in a family office? And we believe people are your biggest asset. So, Getting that right at the beginning, I think, is, is so critical to the success of a family office and having a strategy. And it doesn't have to be 10 years. It can be, you know, a, a two-year strategy, understanding what you need, but making sure you're prepared at the beginning rather than just stacking what we like, you know, a house of cards where you're, you need an accountant because your taxes, you know, that we've got the tax issues because we've got lots of these jurisdictions where you're investing. We'll bring in an accountant. Okay, well, now we're going to start. So... It can, that, that can, it can all fall apart. So just say that my final thing is to try and get it right at the beginning. And if not, if, you, if things have started and evolved like they do, maybe just sit back and review and say, is this working? Do I need to make changes? Do I need to bring people in? Do I need to outsource stuff? That's my only sort of final point. And uh, if I could add to that, uh, my only nugget would be you know, just professionalize. And what I mean by that is take an institutional view of things, like, you know, whether it's, governance structures, having processes in place. You could be a four-man team, but you could still do this. Like, it surprised us when only 40% of the global respondents of our survey, which is 650 family offices, actually have, um, uh, uh, 40% do not have any form of investment committee. I mean, if you're talking about entities that's investing for a living, investing large sums of money, uh, with too much centralization of power in the hands of very few. I think to having the, if they had an institutional view of things and just adopting a, a practices and uh, habits from uh, a larger corporate, 
they would have ensured that there's some sort of a, a checks and balance in place and created uh, an ex- a non-exec committee of members so that they could so that j- just that mistake is avoided you know because otherwise you're just relying on this one person or the central team to do uh, manage with your your legacy and uh, you know uh, hopefully they get it right but what if they don't so it's always good to have that checks and balance in place and hence create that right governance structure just take that institutional view and professionalize yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense i mean you're you're taking a corpus of assets that may have taken over 100 years Create right, and then you are not creating any sort of governance framework around it. Which, to your point, is an investment committee, um, and it's also a great way to sort of bring uh, a broader pool of family members into the mix to really understand the portfolio, investment management, and so forth. Um, so I've seen that pay great dividends. Um, but that. Guys, uh, I appreciate the time today for everyone joining, you know, family office executives, advisors, and so forth. Appreciate the time. We're actually going to have another one of these um, coming up again in another month. Um, you know, more details to come there. But today that includes our webinar. Uh, Paul and Taya, thank you again for joining, providing insights on how family office can better manage your human capital practice. And I'd also like to uh, give a shout out and thank you to Brittany Chankowitz, who helped um, really tee this whole thing up. Um, and so an audio replay of today's webinar will be available in the coming days. And if you have any questions, reach out to myself or a UBS PWA advisor. Again, thank you for your time and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. It does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any specific product or service. UBS does not provide legal or tax advice, and we would recommend listeners to obtain appropriate independent professional advice. Some of the views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Group AG or its affiliates. UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. These services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS Group AG and is a member of FINRA and SIPC.